Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. The secret to catching prize-worthy fish? Fishing like a local. Jonas Knox here with Fishing Booker. The valuable knowledge of a local guide can turn a fishing trip of no bites into the best catch of the day. Go to fishingbooker.com to discover thousands of local fishing charters from all around the world and create your perfect angling adventure with their easy-to-use online booking system. Visit fishingbooker.com and book your trip today. Fishing Booker. Fishing trips made easy. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bed 365 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, it's Jonas Knox. Winter is coming. Heavy rain, sleet, snow, and ice. Are your tires up for the challenge? Tread confidently in winter's worst with a set of new tires from Tire Rack. They sell only the best, like the full line of Pirelli tires. Go to TireRack.com sports. Tell them what you drive. Your tires will ship fast and free to you or one of over 10,000 recommended installers. TireRack.com, the way tire buying should be. This is the best of Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis on Fox Sports Radio. Got some Monday motivation for you. He's Rob O'Neill. He's a former United States uh, Navy uh, SEAL, and he is the man who killed Osama bin Laden. He has got a book out. It is called uh, The Operator, I believe, and uh, it is out right now, and uh, it's just coming out in paperback. And I think a lot of you are going to enjoy talking with him. Let me bring him in, uh, Rob O'Neill. Rob, what's up, my man? How are you doing? I'm well. Good morning. How are you? I am doing uh, excellent. I appreciate you getting up early in the morning with us here. So let's dive right into it. When I when your publicist reached out and said, would you like to talk to him? I said, God, yes. I'd love to talk to him. I think this would be great uh, for our audience. Um, you grew up in Montana. You go into the Navy SEALs. You're there for years. I want to start with the Osama bin Laden uh, operation. What was that experience like as you climb onto the helicopter? What do you know? What do you expect? And what happened? When we got onto the helicopter, it was actually in Jalalabad, Afghanistan, at an airfield there. And I was fortunate enough to be picked to be part of the, well, I've seen the best team assembled in the military, to include the pilots and uh, the intel people and the air crew and all that stuff. Um, the guys going in on the helicopters, we, we knew there was pretty high chance that it was a one-way mission that we weren't going to come home from it. So we were very, very focused. Nobody was afraid. It was just a very focused and uh, um, serious, you know, moment. We all, you know, gave each other hugs, got in the helicopters and flew. And when we took off, we'd flown out of Jalalabad uh, quite a few times, but normally you fly north to head up near uh, different cities, different valleys. But we headed to the right and went to um, cross the Pakistan border. And then once we crossed the Pakistan border, we knew it was a, uh, it was go time, and we had about 90 minutes until we got to the compound, knowing that we're it's pretty much a first world nation we're going into with with pretty modern um, air defenses, and these helicopters have never been used before, so we could get shot down at any time, and uh, you know everyone on board would die. But we knew that worrying about that wasn't going to help, so we just started doing other stuff. So guys started putting on their uh, a couple guys put in their earbuds, listened to their uh, their music. I remember counting from zero to a thousand, a thousand to zero, just to get my mind off. I learned that as a sniper year before, uh, and, and just you know, get, just getting ready to do it. And so then, you know, we we got the um, we uh, got the ten minute out call when we sort of banked to the south. We opened the doors at two minutes, and then uh, everything went pretty much wrong from there. We had a helicopter crash land in the front yard. My helicopter went down on the outside of the compound. But we were very well trained, very, very prepared, knowing that the perfect plan never happens. It's your preparation that gets there because, you know, the worst thing that could happen is crashing in the front yard, which the other helicopter did. And I remember putting my foot down on the ground outside thinking, well, I guess we just start the war from here. 
And so we got to find a way inside and get to the top of that uh, that building. All right, before we get there, where were you on 9-11? I was deployed with SEAL Team 2. I was in Germany at uh, one of our units there in Stuttgart, and I was actually upstairs in one of the offices typing an email to some friends. And uh, we had we had a, a United States uh, um, news agency on television, and someone said, you know, with the breaking news, obviously there's a fire in the North Tower. They were immediately talking about a small plane or a Cessna. And we were looking at it like, you know, we've all been there. That's a big, big hole. There's no way that's a Cessna. We were talking about it until 9.03 when the second plane hit. And it wasn't 20 seconds later that someone in the room said Osama bin Laden. We knew it was al-Qaeda and that the world had just changed. We're talking to Rob O'Neill. His book is out right uh, now in paperback. It's called The Operator. He's the man who shot and killed uh, Osama bin Laden. Okay, so you joined the Navy SEALs at the age, or you joined the Navy at the age of 19, I believe. I'm going to get back to Osama bin Laden in that raid here in a minute, but I want to start with that. You're 19 years old. Uh, What did the Navy do for you? At what point did you start to think about becoming a Navy SEAL, and how did you make that happen? I joined the Navy with the intent of becoming a Navy SEAL, and uh, I, I knew I needed to get it in writing. I didn't know much about contracts, but I did know that Sometimes in the military, they'll tell you just to join and send you off, and you can volunteer when you get there for certain things, but that's just a recruiter trying to get the numbers. Uh, I actually wanted to be a sniper, and he said I could be a sniper if I became a SEAL. So I signed to become a SEAL, but before I knew what a SEAL was, um, he had me sign because I didn't know how to swim. Um, and and I, I, once I signed and we started realizing, well, he started showing me what the training was, I had to learn how to swim. I, had, I was fortunate to have about five and a half months from the time that I signed to the time that I left, so I could go to a pool and I had a friend teach me how to swim. So that was a tough one. When I when I first got to SEAL training, you know, I knew the two strokes, side stroke and uh, breast stroke that I would need. But I, I'm I'm a training with you know collegiate water polo players, guys who are really good. Once I got there, I knew I wasn't going to quit the training, but I'm probably not going to pass all the swim the swimming evolutions. But I'm going to stay here as long as they uh, they'll keep me. And, and that was kind of the attitude I had, and that's that's really where I learned the, uh, you know, one step at a time, one day at a time, and don't quit right now because that's just emotion. Quit tomorrow, uh, just one meal at a time, and and that's kind of that's actually the the preface of the book, is is uh, it's, it's it's called the operator, not because it's about I'm not calling myself that. That's that's the story of the life of the operator, which is any special operator, any ranger, any green beret or seal, and. Um, it's just proof that, you know, if a, a chubby white kid from Montana who doesn't know how to swim can become a Navy SEAL and end up in, in Bin Laden's bedroom, that it doesn't matter where you're from or what you look like. You can do anything you want. Just because someone's from somewhere else doesn't mean they're better than you are. And it's, it's a lot of mindset. The first the first thing to go when a person quits anything is, is your mind. Once your mind goes, your body follows. But if, you're, if your mind stays positive, your body will go with you. It's a remarkable story. So you wanted to be a sniper. Did you grow up shooting all the time in Montana? What made you believe that you were a great shooter such that you could get into the Navy SEALs in that way? Well, I didn't I didn't grow up shooting uh, competition, but I did grow up hunting. And just sighting in uh, rifles that we would use for big game, everything from antelope, deer, elk, moose, sighting in, learning the ballistics, and learning that I had a, I had a pretty good shot, I had a knack for pulling the trigger at the right time. It just made sense to me. And that was actually the first school that I attended after graduating you know, the previous schools and becoming a Navy SEAL. They sent me to Indiana to Camp Atterbury for a Navy SEAL uh, sniper course, and I went through that. Um, and it, was just, it, just, it just seemed like a natural fit. Well, we're talking to Robert O'Neill. His new book, uh, The Operator, is out in paperback, and he's joining us here uh, live on OutKick. So when you are tr- uh, in high school, you play any sports? Oh, you said you were a chubby kid from Montana before you joined the SEALs. <laughs> what, uh, what kind of... Uh, you know, team kind of training, anything else did you have before you became a SEAL? Did you play anything in high school? Yeah, I did. I played uh, basketball. up. I actually played a year of college basketball at Montana Tech in Butte, Montana. And that's, I joined the Navy out of, uh, after my first year of college. But that was a good, that was a good team sport for me. Uh, I played a lot with my father who, who played at the University of Montana. And one rule that we had, he and I would play every single day, even, even when I was playing during the season. And a rule that we had before we left the gym is that one of us had to make um, 20 free throws in a row before you can leave. Like one guy rebounds for the other and you do it until you leave, which can take some time. And um, we actually got up to the point where um, he made, I want to say he made 86 free throws in a row. And then a few weeks later, I made 105 in a row. 
and that was just um, that was just a, a good repetitiveness, good uh, systematic stuff. That, a lot of that comes with shooting too. A lot of breathing, uh, everything from pulling the trigger to follow through. Same with shooting a, a jump shot or a set shot. So that, I think that helped out a lot, especially with the patience and the realization that you know you you, you miss one, you got to hit and shoot again. So you go into Navy SEAL training. I think there have been movies made about this. There are books, obviously, including yours, about that experience. How brutal, mind-numbingly difficult. Take me and everyone else out there who's headed into work this morning into what it was like to train to be a Navy SEAL, how hard it was, how long it took, and what it felt like to actually be in the midst of that training. Training for, you know, SEAL training, basic underwater demolition SEAL training, or BUDS is what we call it, is, is essentially the hardest military training in the world. And it's, um, it is, I remember being so bad that I, I, I remember my past from where I came, but I didn't have a future. I'm just going to be in hell. And it's, it's, it, it, it really taught the uh, short-term goal to long-term goal. Like I was mentioning earlier, go, go, just go from meal to meal. Um, if, you, if you think, okay, I'm going to be – it's an eight-month-long course. Eighty percent of the people who try it don't make it because it, it, you're doing tests every single day, and, and the tests are bizarre. Like you have a 50-meter underwater swim. You know, swim half the length of a football field without breathing. It's 5.5 nautical-mile ocean swim. They have tests where they uh, tie you up and throw you in a pool doing different drills like exhaling to sink, uh, floating, you know, your hands tied behind your back, feet together, swimming hundreds of meters tied up. Um, all kinds of timed evolutions, running and swimming, and, and uh, it's eight months is is a long time to be doing that every single day. And you know, good to get into dive medicine, dive physics, certain kind of laws, and then ballistics and shooting and, and um, explosives and all kinds of things. Uh, but if you just take it one day at a time and realize that there's a great speech out there that talks about making your bed in the morning and do this. And I'll I'll tell that in my speeches. You know, wake up in the morning on time, make your bed the right way, and brush your teeth. Just get these little victories. And go through the entire day again from meal to meal, and no matter how bad your day was, and everyone has bad days. Um, as soon as you get back in that perfectly made bed, because it's made the right way, you get a clean slate for tomorrow. And worrying about yesterday is not going to help. And you know you're not having a, a bad life; you're having a bad day, one piece at a time. And, and that's just um, that's just how you get through it. And you learn that. And, but then eventually, kind of the eye opener for me is, you know, I'm a week out from graduating and I'm like, holy crap, I'm going to graduate. Now I got to be a Navy SEAL. What's that going to be like? Uh, it's, but it's a really, it's, it, but it's, it's just, it's, it's like I was mentioning earlier. It's just a test that proves that your mind is the most important thing. Mindset is everything. And if you get into the negativity, you, you, it's going to have a tendency to pull you right back down. And like a, when I give motivational speeches and, you know, people say they're having a bad day or having a tough time of stress, what should I do? I'll say, you know, what, get off social media for a few days and see how you feel. Because that's a lot of negativity right there, and, and that's the mindset. No, it's, it's really well said. We're talking to Robert O'Neill. Uh, his new book is The Operator. It's out in paperback. All right, I want to go back now to uh, Abbottabad, to the landing, and you, get, you step off, of the, uh, heli- off the helicopter there. You're in Pakistan. Take me through that experience, as you best recall it, as you go into the compound where Osama bin Laden, you guys believe, is at the top of, uh, of, of basically the building in the center of this compound. We got off the helicopter, and like I mentioned, we were outside of the wall, so we had to try to get in. And we have methods of entry to get in places, and everybody there was as experienced as we could ask. So we used a couple things, different bombs and stuff. And I, I, in the operator, I do get into detail. But we eventually got our way in, and as we're walking through the door into his property, I remember looking up to the left, seeing his house, and just realizing this house is going to blow up when we get inside of it, but this is so cool to be here, to be asked, to be honored, to be on this mission that I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to absorb every moment of this. And, you know, we, we got in the bottom floor, there'd already been a gunfight and we killed, not me, but our guys had killed three of the insurgents, uh, the terrorists. And we were just kind of going in uh, the first long hallway on the first floor. And I remember looking at my guys because of the situation where I was on the outside when I finally got in, other guys were working, and I was able to be in the back. So I had the front row seat to one of the greatest missions in modern history. And I watched my guys, and I just remember the feeling of pride, being so proud of the guys. No one was afraid. Everyone was doing their um, their methods, slow as smooth, smooth as fast, uh, escalating force to get into certain spots, taking care of women and children, believe it or not. That's what the good guys do, because there were a lot of women and children in there, and we're making sure they're not as, as afraid as they need to be. Um, the guys breached the, the, the bottom door, and there was a stairwell that went up. 
Uh, very cool story that I can't get into now, but we ran into, the, the, there was a woman that found Bin Laden, and she said when you get to the stairs, you're going to run into uh, Khalid Bin Laden, who is his 19 or 20-year-old son. Last line of defense, um, I was able to watch my guys eliminate his threat because he was armed. They shot him, and the, if you read the operator, the story's incredible how that went down. Uh, we got to the second, and I, I was like seven or eight guys back uh, in the line. We got to the second floor. All the guys split off to the right and left to clear unknown spaces, different hallways and rooms, which put me um, in, in the number two position. So there's one man in front of me. I'm behind him at two. Uh, he's looking up the stairs. Um, through the, Up the top of the next set of stairs is a curtain. I'm looking back for more of our guys, but we didn't have any. We were spread too thin. He, in so many words, told me we we got to get up there because we're assuming that he sees people moving behind a curtain. He's assuming they're putting on suicide vests because if anyone's going to blow himself up or blow themselves up to defend the line, it's them. So he wanted to get up there before they could hopefully have their vests on. So I squeezed his shoulder as if to tell him, let's go, and we went up the stairs. And I don't know what he was thinking, but I was thinking um, it wasn't bravery. It was just, all right, we're going to blow up now, and I'm just tired of thinking about it. I want to get it over with. So we went up the stairs. He went to the curtain. He subdued a few people by jumping on them, which I thought was the bravest thing I'd ever seen because he kind of jumped on people. He assumed we had grenades or vests to absorb the blast with his body to give the guy behind him a shot uh, at, at Osama bin Laden. I saw him do that, and I turned to the right, and in three feet in front of me, standing on two feet, was Osama bin Laden. He, he, he was sort of he had his hands on his wife's shoulders, so he was sort of pushing her towards me. But we were very close together. I had an easy shot because he was about six foot four. She was small. Um, I did a quick assessment. You know, um, beard is shorter than I thought. He's skinnier than I thought, taller. Um, he's not surrendering. That's his nose. He's a suicide bomber, so I had to shoot him in the in the face twice and then once more on the ground. And um, so he went down at the foot of his bed, and I moved his wife back to back to the bed to sit her down. And um, it started to sink in. Holy crap, that was Bin Laden. And now we might live. It was very fast. It was a matter of a few seconds. Yeah, it's remarkable. And we're talking to Robert O'Neill, his book, The Operator. He's the man who shot Osama Bin Laden. You said you saw him. You have a fraction of a second, basically, to decide, yes, it's him. This guy who's kind of become the embodiment of all that's evil in the world for many people, you suddenly find yourself face-to-face with him. I asked you where you were on 9-11. Were you 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt confident that it was him? I mean, that's just, I feel like the instant instantaneous nature of it, to suddenly find yourself face-to-face in a dark room against uh, that man who embodies all that is evil in many respects, uh, that's that had to be an uh, unbelievable, really remarkable feeling. But also, you've been trained for that. I, I mean, I, I can't even conceptualize what it felt like. Well, we had we had. Um, I knew he was there before we got there, just based on the analysts, especially uh, one woman who found him, just explaining to us what we would encounter and how it all went down, uh, exactly the way they were saying. And it was we. I knew he would be up there. That's why I was so convinced we would blow up. And then when I saw him, it was just, I mean, it was just, it was, I already had it in my mind that he's got two seconds to convince me not to shoot him because suicide bombers, I've dealt with them before, are very fast. It's scary. It's loud. It's permanent. And it's, it's up to him to surrender. And he, he, he knows where he's got to know we're here. He, he got, he's got to know we're coming. He has a chance to surrender. And just to get there in the way he was maneuvering on me, it, he, he didn't do the right thing. No, no hands in the air. No, I couldn't see his chest. I assumed he had a vest. Um, so I was anticipating seeing him as I turned the corner. Uh, it did it did come quicker and ended a lot quicker than I thought it would. But but I, I was it's not like I just opened a closet. There's been a lot, and I I kind of was ready for it. So when you you shoot him, you guys then have to grab the body, like provide ID, things like that. What happens immediately after he's shot? Uh, we gotta sort we gotta get him prepared, if you will, for a picture. There are several pictures, which means you you, you want to clear of. Uh, a vision of his face as possible, which to include clean a little, you know, a little bit of his face off. It's it's a messy situation. You want to get the picture, and then we want to get him ready to transport. We also, if we can, want to get some DNA from him. We had certain kits to do that, which we did. Uh, and then, with the amount of time we had left, we wanted to go through the house and see what kind of intelligence we could find, and that could be anything from electronics, computer hard drives, uh, um, external hard drives, CDs pictures, anything like that. So we went through, found a bunch of stuff, put that in bags, always monitoring our timeline. And then we have someone outside coordinating for the helicopters to come back to get us. And once the helicopters came in, 
we uh, would separate the body in one helicopter, the DNA in the other helicopter, just for, for redundancy. In case one went down, the other one had something. We have the pictures in both. And and because of the situation where we were, uh, we we had to blow up the helicopter that was in the in the front yard. Just we, we weren't sure if we could pi- uh, fly it back out, but one of the pilots thought we could, but we didn't want to take the risk, so we had to put uh, charges on that, try to blow it so no one could find it. Um, we got most of it, but you, there's a famous picture out there of the tail that fell over the wall. That's the one that the Pakistanis got and sold to the Chinese, inevitably. But there's a lot going on, and then you get in the uh, the helicopter. Now you got to fly home, and that's another 90 minute flight where you can get shot down justifiably at any time. So that's another you know hair raising 90 minutes, and that's another great story that's in there too of of how the guys were sort of dealing with each other and the fact that if we live 90 minutes, we get to see our kids again. You know, it's it's a, it's a pretty emotional time, but it worked out pretty much pretty much how we needed it to, just not how we planned it to. Do you have time to come back for five more minutes on the flip side, or you got to go somewhere else? No, yeah, I'll be right here. That'll be All right. time to make another coffee. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to come back. i got a couple more questions I want to get to you. It's Robert O'Neill. The book is The Operator, The Man Who Killed Osama Bin Laden, The Navy SEAL. It's an amazing, I think, interview to start off your Monday mornings. When you left us, you were getting on the helicopter hoping to be able to come back a 90-minute flight. What's that experience like in the helicopter right after you shot Osama Bin Laden? Thanks again for having me back. Uh, that, that's a that's an interesting time because, like I was saying earlier, we just finished the mission. We have Bin Laden and the proof and the pictures and all the guys, everybody pretty much unhurt, flying back. And not 90 minutes away from a mission we thought we weren't going to survive. And we're sitting in a helicopter. Everyone starts their watches, but nobody talks about it. And I love using sports analogies for this because as we're flying back, you know, it's like you're looking at your watch. You know, we got 90 minutes, but we've already been flying for 10 minutes, then 20 minutes, then 30 minutes. And then it seems like, um, you know, you're at Fenway watching a no-hitter at the top of the sixth. Um, I'm not going to say anything, but he's pitching a, you know, whatever. And then it's 70, you know, 80 minutes, and no one's talking, but everyone's looking at each other. And, and then it reminds me of, it reminded me actually of a Miracle on Ice when the Americans beat the Russians in Lake Placid in the 1980 Olympics. And we're all kind of looking at each other, and the pilot, at 85 minutes, because he was flying very fast, he kind of came over with the radio and said, all right, gentlemen, for the first time in your lives, you're going to be happy to hear this. Welcome to Afghanistan, which means, <laughs> which means we just crossed the border, and we're good. We made it. And we got Bin Laden. We got everybody out. We landed. Uh, and that's, you know, that's when we started high-fiving and talking to each other. Like, you know, we going through kind of many debriefs. I remember the Admiral McRaven, the guy in charge of the whole thing, came over and he kind of, I remember he put his hand on my uh, neck, on the, like the back of my neck, like a, like a like a proud mentor would, and we had a few words about it. And we moved Bin Laden to another base, and they were doing the, um, we're doing the, um, the uh, post work, going through the stuff that we brought out. We have analysts going through a lot of the intelligence. They're doing more DNA tests on Bin Laden. He's right there. And we had a, a television on, a big 70-inch uh, flat screen, and there's speculation that Bin Laden was killed. Uh, they brought the press pool back to the White House. Again, Bin Laden's right there. Then they, they, the Army brought us these breakfast sandwiches. They hand, we're eating these sandwiches. We had most of our gear still on. And then President Obama comes out and said, all right, tonight I can report to the American people and to the world the United States conducted an operation that killed Osama Bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda. And I hear him say that. I hear the president say Bin Laden. I look at Bin Laden, who's laying right there, and I thought, how in the world did I get here from Butte That is a pretty so. remarkable and surreal moment, I would imagine, oh, when yeah. the president's oh, addressing. Yeah. How much time from when you guys had shot Ob- uh, Osama Bin Laden to Obama speaking was there? I mean, we're talking like two and a half hours? I mean, you guys about, are still in your gear. I think it was about four hours, because we had to fly back. We had to fly from where we were, you know, the 90 minutes back and land and sort of regroup and then get in an airplane and fly up to the main base in the Bagram Airfield, and then you have to put everything out there, lay things out, sort of explain what's happening. And while we're doing all of this, uh, the, the TV is on, and people are sort of speculating. Remember, I mean, even uh, you, like Geraldo Rivera running around saying they, they think he got him and all this stuff. Oh, The Rock, this- I think, was the first person I saw who had it, uh, who had the news, which is amazing. Uh, oh, I yeah, got- yeah, I remember that. I got to tell you, read this book. Uh, it is uh, amazing. We're talking to Robert O'Neill. The book is The Operator. It's out in paperback. Thanks for starting off your morning with us. I think a lot of people got some Monday motivation from you. Thanks, Rob. Awesome. Thanks, Clay.
Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeartRadio app. I sat around to watch WrestleMania uh, for uh, the entirety last night. It went on for a long time. I don't know what time this thing started, like 7 o'clock ended after or about 11 o'clock later, whatever the time was. Uh, my kids were enthralled. They absolutely loved it. They were uh, totally enmeshed in uh, in the process. Part of the uh, Part of the WrestleMania event that has become just this massive, multi-day, tr- truly like uh, interesting part of the American sports calendar is the uh, Hall of Fame introductions. And in particular, Jeff Jarrett, who was down in New Orleans with us now, he came out, he was introduced, he became a Hall of Famer. He's been wrestling for 30 years. And uh, Jason Martin is grabbing him on the phone to talk with us. There were a lot of intriguing parts, I would say, of the intersection of the continued UFC and, and WWE intersection uh where you had ronda rousey make her debut i'm not sure guys whether she's ever going to go back to the ufc now she looked like she completely fit in in that environment she fought against stephanie mcmahon the daughter of vince mcmahon and uh seemed like she was embraced with adulation and love from that crowd and then you had brock lesnar who uh came out and uh and pulled off an upset victory in his performance And so I think one thing that's definitely going to happen at some point in time, when exactly it will be, I don't know. Conor McGregor is going to end up in the WWE at one point. There's an interesting interesting storyline there where everybody who has ever produced like big-time, detailed, huge audiences in the UFC has managed at some point to translate to the WWE, whether it's Brock Lesnar, whether it's Ronda Rousey, maybe one day it's going to be Conor McGregor. We're joined now by uh by our guest who was down last night in wrestlemania he came out he was introduced jeff jarrett he was a member of the 2018 wwe hall of fame class jeff you've been in wrestling 30 years how did the environment last night in the uh in the superdome down in new orleans uh kind of factor in in your experience it's incredible uh good morning clay appreciate you having me on but no um yeah i have been around a long time and and wrestling in domes has always been a challenge because you know, when you come to see professional wrestling live, it, it, I don't say, call it an intimate setting, but it, it's different than you watch on TV. So in a dome show, you're so far away, but it's just like nowadays. Every you know, you you they've got big screens everywhere, and and there's so much going on. And the audio in these buildings—that's something that I know has incredibly increased and, and dramatically. It's just so so good. It was it was the vibe. It's hard to it's hard to describe when you know when when you kick off the main card. And, and the building erupts and the WrestleMania presentation and the opening package, everything. Electricity goes to that building like no other. Uh, obviously, you know, we're not true sport, not, not, not all the way just entertainment. There's a lot of athleticism, but man, there's an incredible electricity in these special kind of events, people from all over the world. Uh, so it was really special. It really was. You've got a situation, I would say, where a lot of people out there listening to us right now may have been kids growing up watching you, watching Hulk Hogan, uh, Macho Man, all those guys who were dominant in the 80s and 90s and beyond. And it seems to me, and I could be wrong, but you've been in this industry for a long time, that wrestling is continuing to grow and maybe even is at an apex right now. Do you think wrestling is bigger now or in the 1980s and 1990s? Well, I'll just say this. In the 1980s and 1990s, you could maybe catch wrestling once a week. Uh, you know, in the, before cable television, it was Saturday mornings or Saturday evenings. It was off prime. Now you have it Monday nights on USA for three hours, Tuesday nights for two hours. Yeah, for, for God's sake, it's an entire WWE network and not to get into too many numbers like that unless you really want to. It's just a, it's a, it's a WWE network. It's a trendsetter. It's enormous. It's much, much, much bigger now. I mean, John Cena is on the Today Show uh, just as much or more than any other celebrity out there. The greatest or the, the biggest box office attraction in the world today, The Rock, uh, is professional wrestling. And everybody knows it. It's not like he's left this business and never coming back. So I think it's as big uh, it, by, by leaps and bounds, exponentially, uh, it, it's bigger. It's um it, it, it is, I mean, we're in, we, you know, the Superdome, and I'm sitting here looking at it right now, uh, about to go get my morning cardio in, but, um, you know, they hold, host Super Bowls. Uh, but when the Super Bowl comes to down, and yes, it is bigger, the, the game, I'm not trying to compare it, uh, but the WWE rolled into town, and we have the Hall of Fame at the Smoothie King Center where the Pelicans play on Friday and NXT, 
uh, a sellout house Saturday night, then the Dome Sunday, and then tonight and tomorrow night, they're back in the Smoothie King Center producing television, three hours or two hours. So five consecutive nights when it comes to a town. You know, Mania is, is it's just, it's incredible. The economic impact, you know, the morning news, noon news, afternoon news for, for like two weeks in this town. So it's much bigger, uh, and there's and, and for a bunch of different reasons, but I think it's, it's much, much bigger. We're talking to Jeff Jarrett. He's up early with us. He was inducted to the WWE Hall of Fame. Last night you're out on the stage bathing in that adulation, 75,000 fans cheering for you this morning. It sounds like you're up early about to get a coffee and get into the gym and get your workout on. Uh, what did it mean to you, 30 years in wrestling, to get inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame? You know, incredible. I'm third generation. My grandmother took a second job. Her her, her husband, my grandfather, uh, came back from the war in the 40s but didn't actually come home, if you know what I mean. And she got a second job selling wrestling tickets. And so she worked her way up to what we would now call a, a CFO. And... Um, so, and my dad wrestled and promoted, and, and obviously I followed in the footsteps. And there's less than 200 individuals to be inducted into this Hall of Fame, and there's tens of thousands upon tens of thousands of wrestlers uh, from all over the world, Germany, Japan. I mean, it's a, it, it truly is a global uh, industry. And so it, it really, it's, it's a really proud moment, and, and I've been overwhelmed uh, since I arrived here Thursday, thinking, uh, dumb me, thinking that really the Hall of Fame ceremony is all a, was going to talk about, but cameras, I've, I've literally, I didn't even get to watch the last match last night because I had .com and the network stuff. I've done five different network shows. Uh, I literally have worked, quote unquote, since I got here uh, Thursday at 2.30. So uh, it was special, uh, but man, it, it's the, there's just so much that goes into it. Uh, but me being a part of the Hall of Fame is, is really, really special for me and my entire family. Uh, I appreciate you getting up with us so early, uh, and I am. Uh, I am Clay, I, Clay, I've <laughs> wanted to be on your show forever, and you never invite because I. No, I'm, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, no, no. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, you, you've been uh, listening to the, the show for a while. You listened to the show in Nashville, and uh, I am. Uh, I'm really kind of interested in in your relationship with Vince McMahon in general. Uh, Vince McMahon is this. Uh, you, you talked about how long your family's been involved in wrestling. Vince McMahon comes in and kind of changes the industry. Has he been totally, in a, in, a, in a word, good or bad for wrestling in your mind? And what's your relationship been like with him over the years? He's not just been good. And, and you know, people will, you know, or I can definitely see the vein that they would think that I'm, I'm saying this now. He changed the industry so much for the good. You really can't even put it into words because – you know, like I said, we are mainstream. The business wasn't the mainstream in the 70s. It was a, a, almost a four-letter word. And, and, you know, it goes without saying that we cross all socioeconomic boundaries where a NHL or a NBA or NFL might quite not do that to the extreme that we do. But we're three-generational form of entertainment. Grandpas and grandmas bring their grandkids and everything in between. Um, so he has defined the business, uh, unlike any other, you know, when you try to draw an analogy to him, to him, and I'll go back, you know, sporting with Pete Rozelle, Roger Goodell, they didn't really define the sport and they're quote unquote, the leaders of it. And then you have the original owners like a Bud Adams or whoever it may be. They didn't define the sport. Vince McMahon took professional wrestling, which was your regional television, and with the advent of cable television, and then now with the way entertainment's gone and all the streaming services, he's knocked down doors for our industry that have never, ever could have been considered. I mean, when you think about there's a celebrity hall of this, and I said this to a couple of the guys when I was doing interviews, when you think about the celebrity wing, and, and you know, you could almost do tongue-in-cheek to some people, but when you really look back on it, our celebrity wing has the president of the United States. Donald Trump is it. I'm in the same Hall of Fame playing class, uh, Clay, uh, or not class. I'm in the same Hall of Fame that our president, Donald Trump, is. <laughs> that, that really, <laughs> I mean, when you really think about that, Kid Rock was inducted this weekend. Uh, so, uh, you know, Vince is, Vince is an incredible visionary, and I, there's obviously no one quite like him. I can't even really draw a proper analogy in the sporting world or in the entertainment world. Maybe he's comparative to Walt Disney. I, I, I don't know. Um, but, no, Vince, uh, me being able to reconnect with him, you know, our my father and Vince were close back in the late 80s, early 90s. I worked for him all through the 90s. 
Uh, I went one way, he went the other way, but for, so for us to reconnect and, uh, it was really, really special, man. We, we really had a, a, a personal conversation last night that was personal. Uh, but man, it was, uh, it was special. It, 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 I'll just say it was very, very special. We're talking to Jeff Jarrett. Um, it's amazing. You got back to your hotel room last night at 2.30 a.m. Central. You've gotten about four hours of sleep after a long-ass weekend and a long-ass day of WrestleMania. You have seen a lot of wrestlers come and go. Ronda Rousey officially made her debut uh, for in all intents and purposes wrestling-wise last night at WrestleMania. How did you think she did? What kind of long-term future do you think she has in the WWE? And and it goes without saying that professional wrestling and MMA, uh, you can maybe draw an analogy that they're, they're they're both inside a ring, but it stops right there. What we do obviously is completely different. Um, and 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 Ronda's match last night, and it's the one that you know there were a couple of AJ Styles for a personal reason, but there were a couple of reasons I want you know me and Kurt's relationship, uh, we 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 go back a ways. Uh, but that's one of the matches that I absolutely told guys I'm watching this match. And, and to say that it, it, it was incredible and hats off to Rhonda because she was the one in the ring, uh, who has, you know, zero experience and everybody else has, you know, Stephanie grew up in the business. Triple H is 15 time, 16 time world champion. Kurt, multiple time world champion. You know, so, so. A lot of experience at the ring, and she was incredible. It blew me away. It blew the entire uh, Superdome away. I'm sure the people online, I hadn't read anything about it. But, but Clay, you know, to watch that from my, through my eyes is obviously different from, from, from others, but, you know, with my history and everything, super impressed. And, and, and does she have, I mean, <laughs> after last night, she is going to be a major mainstay in our industry uh, for, for a while to go. And uh, the, the thing I probably like the most about it is, 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 is she was a fan. She was a fan growing up. She, she's a fan. Uh, so it's pretty cool. It was uh, her, her performance was off the charts. Dana White being there on the front row, uh, I know in the back of his mind, he had to be thinking, like a lot of uh, us, and then also business side, how's she really going to do when the red light's on? Because it's a completely different uh, – you know, pro athletes have done this before, and, you know, you get winded, you, you get extremely exhausted because of nerves, not so much because of physicality. It was off the charts good. It was it was 20 minutes of entertainment, and it's like it, when you walk away from watching that match, if you're not entertained, you don't have a pulse. We're talking to Jeff Jarrett. Do you think well, – we talked about Brock Lesnar. We talked about Ronda Rousey. Uh, Jeff Jarrett inter- introduced, uh, introduced into the WWE Hall of Fame this weekend down in New Orleans. Do you think Conor McGregor will one day be in the WWE? When you look at him, do you think that's a guy who will end up in the in your industry, or do you think that maybe he's a little bit too much of a loose cannon right now? How would you assess his potential future? Well, Clay, you, you're, you're not putting me on the spot. If you would have asked me before going into the weekend, I would have said absolutely he will be in our industry. He can talk. He's arrogant. He's got balls. He doesn't mind getting out, uh, uh, getting out of bounds. Um, he's got everything that goes into what we do. Uh, I mean, he's got loads of personality. Um, I've, I've just heard bits and pieces, so play. you may be able to give me some more facts. It sounds like he really put a black eye, in, and I was doing uh, a lot of network stuff, and so I had in between um, shots yesterday, and I was hearing some guys talking. You know, to, to me, up to this point, Connor forged a path, and I don't want to get too overdramatic, but, you know, Muhammad, you know, the people that really defined their industry and stepped out of it. And, you know, you know, Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, um, uh, you know, Jordan gambled and, and, and you've got, uh, you know, Muhammad Ali, uh, you know, who, who was for peace, but it sounds like Connor went rogue on us. And, and I, again, I don't know all the facts and, but it sounds like he, he's in serious trouble and, and certainly got a black on his, on his career outside the ring. And that's not good. Uh, for branding, especially this day and age. Jeff Jarrett, really quick with me, you think the Preds are going to win the Stanley Cup? They're going to go. And the reason I say that is there's a bunch of Canadian friends I have down here, and, and it's funny. They come up, and, and Clay, you know, we're, we're both born and raised in Nashville. So, uh, you know, hockey's uh, a new sport to us, so to speak. All the Canadians come up and said, your Preds are going to get to the finals, not sure they can win it. But so 
Uh, I'm going to say they're going to win it, but uh, I'm excited for it. I really am. Congratulations, my man. Appreciate you joining us. It's Jeff Jarrett. Go follow him on Twitter. I'll send out the link. Waking up early with us from WrestleMania. Thanks, my man. Thanks, Clay. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. Bring in Dan Wetzel at Dan Wetzel, Yahoo Sports national columnist. Dan, why does everybody hate Patrick Reed? I don't know. I think they're just golf fans. Golf golf has its own culture, and this is um, this is what passes for like the bad boy of golf. Uh, we, I was on Friday talking with you, and we also talked about Conor McGregor throwing a dolly at a bus and injuring other fighters. Um, I could see why other fighters don't like Conor McGregor, right? Yes. But this, I don't know. He, you know, he's arrogant. He thinks he's going to win. He, in the past, hasn't been afraid to say he's going to win. Um, yeah, he got, you know, he got basically thrown off the team at University of Georgia. Um, he declared himself a top five player when he, you know, he just came in ranked twenty fourth. I think he got to eleventh this morning. Uh, he's not a top five player. He, he said little things like yesterday. He said um, he had two funny lines. One was, or not funny. He just is saying them. He says, you know, my goal is to be the best golfer in the world, which isn't. Like, I have no problem with That's what you should aspire to, right? You're a professional golfer. But that thing, and then he kept calling the green jacket his first green jacket, you know, implying he's going to win more. And uh, somewhere in the the humble ethos of professional golf, apparently, these are the things. And so, you know, he's look, he's definitely an odd guy. He doesn't hang around with the other golfers. He's estranged from his family. He doesn't talk to his parents or his, uh, his sister. There's definitely some stuff there, but... I don't know why the fans care. Um, I think he's a pretty interesting guy. He had some pizzazz to the, the tour, uh, and he's he's certainly a heck of a talent. It is interesting. Could you feel – you're on the course there. Could you feel that he was noticeably less – and what's interesting about this is, I should say, he played in Augusta, literally, right? He played on a college team in that town. He's from Texas, yet Rory McIlroy, who is an Irishman – was more uh, supported by that crowd in that final grouping, it sounded like on television, than Patrick Reed was. Could you pick up on that very uh, easily as you were there on the course that he was not the favorite of the galleries? Absolutely. Now, look, people come from all over to go to Augusta for, for the Masters, but it still is in Augusta. You figure more people, at least you know some segment. He led Augusta State to two national titles. Augusta State. I mean, like they only have one Division One program, and they won it. And so you would think there would be some kind of pride there, uh, and maybe there is. But when he 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 described it as like a Ryder Cup. You know, golf fans are lap dogs. If you hit a good shot, they're going to cheer. Doesn't matter if it's the other guy. Like nobody cheers when LeBron James hits a great three pointer against your team. You just groan. But he, you know they cheer. But when Rory would hit one, even you know it's a roar. It's like the Ryder Cup and. When he won, I was standing on the eight, uh, around the 18th green, couldn't even really see. There's so many people, and he took a putt, the, the, the third putt, which you know he had, he could basically par out, and he had two putts to par. He's going to make it. The first one kind of skits by about four feet, and the, the groan. It wasn't a groan of a crowd going oh, like which they normally would do if Rory's just missing that. It was like oh, right. And they're all almost all excited. Then he hits it, and there's like. It's not they didn't cheer. They cheered, and they, some clapped, and some people jumped up, but nothing. I mean, I've been out there for 12, 15, I don't know how many Sundays. They go crazy, whoever wins it. Danny Willette can win it. Charles Schwartzel can win it. Uh, they'll go crazy. And when you know Phil wins it, it's bananas. Or Tiger, it's bananas. Jordan, bananas. This was just like polite applause. It was not only noticeable, it was stunning. It was like the weakest cheer for someone to win the Masters I've ever seen. Yeah, and and I maybe I'm just totally not as plugged in as I should be. I didn't really have an opinion of Patrick Reed at all, one way or the other. Did you come into the Masters? Obviously, he led on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, so you had time to kind of do your research and read up on this guy. Did you realize how controversial he was, relatively speaking, in the world of golf? coming into this event, or were you, like a lot of others of us, just kind of learning his history as this tournament played itself out? I'm, no, I mean, I knew about it. I've written about him before, um, talked to his family before, different things. I mean, he's he's a 
I don't know what he is. He's a he's a lightning rod on the thing. So he's certainly a guy that stands out. And he's a guy that can make some incredible shots. It's he had to learn how to kind of get out of his own way, as he said, and just play golf. He sat on this lead for, you know, forty something holes. He led Friday. He sat he slept on a Friday lead and a Saturday lead. That's hard to do with the Masters. A guy you know, Rory's tanked, Phil's tanked, Jordan Speed's tank you know, everybody tanks in this thing. It's a lot of pressure, and he just sat there and played his game. And, you know, he, he entered the day at 14 yesterday. The lowest he got was 13. He ended up at 15. Basically said, come catch me if you can, and nobody could. Uh, they got close, but, you know, Speed was too far behind. Speed had had a bad second round, and, and uh, Fowler made a run at the end, but it just wasn't quite enough. But, yeah, I, I, I knew who he was and what he was. I guess I just didn't think the fans would care. As, you know, it, it felt more inside PGA Tour type thing where, you know, all right, maybe the other players don't like him or the wives don't like his wife or whatever. But he, he had a really, like, exciting Ryder Cup last year uh, against Rory up at Hazeltine. And, and I, I thought maybe that kind of brought people over, but not yet. But you know what? I, you know, maybe this, this brings it to him. Uh, to me, he says very little that, that, you know, granted I also cover the UFC also cover the NBA. I guess I just—I don't know. I just look at it like, okay. I guess Relatively so. speaking, it doesn't take much for a golfer to say. Like you mentioned, oh, you know, he said he's hoping to get fitted for another jacket. Like compared to what UFC guys or NFL or NBA guys, for that matter, might say, the 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 standard for like risque <laughs> speech for golf is definitely a lot different. Yeah, I mean, this is my first green jacket. Okay, so you have you, the implication is clearly I'm going to win more. Oh, so arrogant. Yeah, you know, like Willie. Okay, I mean, I guess, but isn't what? Like, what's he supposed to do? He's twenty-seven. He's going to play in this thing for forty more years. Yeah, like once you once you play it once, you're in forever. Uh, to answer your question, Fred Couples did still play. He was playing sad. He did pretty well. Um, he, I know he played well last year because inevitably he'll have yeah, a good fr- Thursday or Friday. Yeah, but this guy's going to be playing for forty years. Like, what's he supposed to say? Wow, that's good. I'm good. One title's enough for me. I'm just going to hang out here. No, he's going to try to win. He wants to be the number one player in the world. I, again, I don't have any problem with it. I'm not. I'm not denying that he certainly. This is all, like, it's all made up. But I don't play with him, right? I'm not the guy who thinks he's rude on the on the on the practice tee. None yes. of this effect. I'd love to play with him. <laughs> if he wants me to come in balls with him on a practice tee, I'd be happy to do it. But I don't like. So what? I don't care. I don't care if you're nice. Uh, is, are you an interesting guy? And, and this tour has got a lot of great young players, but having someone who's not part of the group, because it's very friendly, because they're all making so much money and they all just take turns winning. I like a guy who having this guy on the tour who's like, yeah, I'm not your friend and I don't really care, and I'm going to try to beat you and I'm gonna, and, and say this stuff. And I think it just makes it more interesting just as – as a as a drama, which all sports really are. Uh, did Rory McIlroy psych himself out with the comments that he made on Saturday? They seemed, again, within the standards of golf trash talk, to be pretty close to golf trash talk about how Rory was going to go head-to-head with him, see what he could happen, and then Rory vanished and was not able to make a real run going head-to-head with him. Do you think that talk psyched him out in any way? Did it have any impact? Probably didn't have any impact. But, you know, here's, again, the double standard. Like, Rory's sitting there Saturday night at the press conference, and he's going, pressure's all on Patrick. He's got to sleep on this lead. He's never won a major. I'm, I'm going for four. All, all the, you know, he implied that. I didn't say these are not direct quotes. But all this stuff, and it's like, oh, Rory and the gamesmanship, it's great. When Patrick Reed says anything like that, you know, he's being, he's being you know, snooty or something like that. Uh, I, Rory just played terrible. He just putted terrible. I mean, he had his chance. He's sitting at two. He should have eagled two and, and tied the score at two. And then he could have been at 14 under or 13 under, uh, I think, and, and Reed was going to be at 13 under. And now it was going to be like, all right, let's go. Let's see if Reed can really handle this. Because it's one thing to have a guy making a run from like Spieth was from five under all the way up. And, and, he's, and he's many holes away. It's another one you got to watch it. And you got to see it right next to you. That puts the pressure. And then Rory just didn't get it done, didn't get it done all day. And he really gave Reed an easy coast through on that final day. It, it was a disappointing performance by Rory McIlroy. Tiger, 
I mean, you can't talk about golf without talking about Tiger, especially when he played. Uh, do you think – I just said I gave the over-under on Tiger at one and a half majors that he could win for the rest of his career. Would you take the under or the over on one and a half for Tiger the rest of his life? Under. Really? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, he's – you know, he, he played he played decent. Uh, certainly played pretty good on Sunday. He didn't really play much early. There's just too many guys. You get into you get into one of these, and and just everybody's coming at you. Everyone's dialed in. Um, guys are going to make incredible play. There's just too many people he has to beat right now, and I, I don't know if he's got that game for four days to do it. I mean, you got guys. Ricky Fowler shot 14 under at the Masters and lost. Uh, you know that that was like that's one of the it's one of the 10 or 15 best scores that I've ever laid down at that place. Um, I, I don't know the number. It may, it may even be top, certainly top 10, but it may be top 20 at, at most. But he's, he, I mean, the record's 18 under. So he's four off the record of, of Spieth and Tiger. Now conditions play a role in all that, but still he, I, 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 I don't know. I don't think he ever wins one, but if he did, it'd be one. So I would put it at half and, and you might get me to consider it, but I just think, um, you know, this was a good weekend for Tiger. He made the cut. He played. This is what golf could use. I wrote a column a year ago, just like we're missing out. The fans are dying to see Tiger. The way they they get excited to to still, you know, they got excited to watch Nicholas, or they got excited to watch, you know, any you know uh, Palmer or any of those older guys. When you get to that level, even if you're not going to win, you could be like, hey, this is you know, I used to love this guy. You get to see him on your favorite course. Um, he did that. He played pretty good. He made the cut. He didn't embarrass himself with like some terrible shots, but you know, winning a major is just so hard. And there's just so many of these dudes in their twenties that are caught, that are just have such incredible games. I, I just think it'd be hard for him to win any. Jordan Spieth had one of the great Sunday rounds in the history of the Masters. If he doesn't clip that tree, he might have found a way to post the greatest Sunday score, maybe the greatest score ever, I think, at the Masters. Is there any way that sticks with him as he moves on through the rest of these uh, tournaments? I know it's a couple of months till uh, the U.S. Open, but is there any kind of significance to you on that Jordan Spieth run and the round that he put up on Sunday, or does it just vanish and uh, he didn't win, so we forget about it? I think people forget about it, but I think the thing is, Jordan Spieth is the best player at Augusta National going, and it's it's not not really close. Now I know he didn't win yesterday, but five years he has three top fives and a and then four top fives, and then one of those is a title, including two two twos. He was unbelievable on Thursday and Sunday. His problem was Friday morning, for whatever reason, his short game just bailed on him. Uh, he could not have played much better than he did Thursday and Sunday, and that allowed him to almost win. If he plays anything reasonable, I think he threw a 75 up on Friday. Uh, if he just shoots par, he wins the tournament. So he's the best player at Augusta. The course is perfect for him. It fits his game. He loves the shots. Um, and so I, to me, every year going forward, when you get to Masters Week, Jordan Spieth should be the favorite going into this thing. And so that's the thing I would take from it or try to remember from it. But I mean, great performance, made it fun. This this kind of would have been a little boring without him. Uh, I know Fowler got there at the end, but Spieth was something to watch. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it's all about what course you're playing. And Jordan can obviously win anywhere in the world, but this is this is the place for him. And, and I think he's got to be sitting there. with those, If you look at those five years, that's four top tens, four top fives, and a title, he's probably really disappointed. Like, he could have won it this year. He certainly could have won it um, the year he blew it to Danny Willette. And then the year Bubba beat him, you know, um, you know, maybe just that's – I don't necessarily call that a loss. I'm sure he does. But that was, that was like a, a, a good match. But uh, this, is his, this is his course, man. He's going to win a lot of green jackets. We're talking to Dan Wetzel at Dan Wetzel, Yahoo Sports National Columnist. Do you wait around and see if you're going to win? I think they auction off for media the right to play the Masters, right? Isn't there something yeah. like cool – how does that work? The media can apply to be in the lottery, and then they pick it, and uh, the winner gets the, the – there's about 16 winners maybe, 24 winners, I don't know. And you get to uh, you get to play uh, Augusta National today. And so do you wait around to see whether you might win that uh, that raffle? 
Well, they they draw it on Friday. I never enter the raffle. I like just I'm like the last person that cares about like journalistic ethics, but um, and it's a tough one because if there's ever anything you're willing to uh, accept from accept uh, from anybody that you cover, uh, that would be it. But so, but I've never done it. Uh, I would have done. I would have played Augusta National by now. I've been here. I don't, you know, twelve. I don't know how many matches I've covered, but at least twelve. So I probably would have won by now. Uh, and gotten to play it, but I just I can't take anything from uh, from Augusta National. Like I can't take anything from you know the NFL or 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 some coach or anything else. So that's just the way I do it. But believe me, there are many there are many of us willing to try that when when as they someone uh, dangle with no, Augusta on you. As someone with no ethics at all, I would definitely sign up every year. There's <laughs> I don't no doubt. Blame anybody. I don't even like bringing it up. But everyone's like, "Why did you?" You know, I'm like, ah, I just can't. I don't. I don't know. I, my problem. My other problem is I don't even think I'd be comfortable. I, they don't really want you there. <laughs> yeah, I mean it is. So at at eighteen, when you're standing there and you like you said, Patrick Reed makes the putt. Are you rooting for him to miss it for the story of him going head to head with Ricky Fowler for the playoff, or are after covering for as many days as you have been and on your feet, like moving around covering it? Are you ready to just be able to write the column? Like from your pure perspective, what were you thinking as he attempted that putt? It didn't matter. There was going to be a column either way. I mean, there's times when, look, when Danny Willett is, you got Jordan. You can write about Jordan Spieth, or Danny Willett's going to steal it. I guess then you just still write about Jordan Spieth. You know, you may be not that interested, but either way, there was going to be a good column. So I didn't really care whether we went to uh, extra holes. You don't want Monday. I want to go home. Um, so you don't want the Monday round. That's really uh, it, or, or getting bled over. But there's plenty of time for they. They almost always get the playoff done. Uh, you, only times they play on Mondays is weather. So I, I didn't really care who won. Uh, we're talking to Dan Wetzel. He's been down in Augusta. He came on with us Fridays up early with us on the Masters. All right, uh, last question for you. And I don't even know if you've been paying attention to this at all. This Shohei Otani, uh, Japanese Babe Ruth. I'm not asking you to break down his game. But is Japanese Babe Ruth the best moniker you can think of in recent history to make somebody say, damn, i got to pay attention to this guy? Like, you tell me that somebody's the Japanese Babe Ruth, I'm watching. Can you think of any, any way that an athlete has been described more recently where you've been like, hey, I don't even care, but i got to watch this guy? How about Thug Rose from the UFC Saturday night? I mean, Did you watch the UFC? Yeah, I watched it. When you have an, oh, I mean, if you ever seen her, she's 114 pounds. Her head shape looks like a barista. Like yeah. she's like this, this nice little twenty-five-year-old girl. I don't want to say girl, but woman. Like she's she's cute, right? And her name's her nickname's Thug. Yeah. I mean, he, her mom named her Rose. Like, oh, my beautiful Rose. No, I'm Thug Rose, right? Tough as nails. I love her. Uh, I don't know. Is the Japanese Babe Ruth? I don't watch baseball. Does Japanese Babe Ruth play in the majors or is he in Japan? Uh, no, no, no. He's oh man, you got to catch up. He's with the Angels. He's twenty three years old. Like the Japanese, yeah, I'm not catching up with baseball. Like, yeah, in the next, in the not happening. In the next week, I'm telling you, you're Japanese gonna have a you're gonna have a Japanese Babe Ruth story. I'm telling you, it's gonna happen. Oh, they bring back the Japanese Mickey Mantle, Jackie. Robinson, <laughs> Still not happening. I'm not watching. Uh, it's Dan Wetzel. Uh, thanks for getting up with us, my man. Uh, Friday as well as Monday. We'll talk to you again soon. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. 
He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey, it's Jonas Knox. All right, game off. we got to pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. I know what you're saying. Flag on the play. You already talked about that. But there's just so much good stuff in this game. In Monopoly Go, you can team up with friends for time tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. The more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. Unique stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes. Cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with. Hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges. A ton include their new unique mini-games like Digging for Treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go, so get off the bench and go download it now free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on!